This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is Justin Meyer. Justin, do you want to say hi? Hello. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we had you on episode 202, I think, to talk about Ken.js. Yeah, that was and, good. Uh, that was good. That was a uh, great time. Plus, I like the palindrome numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I better check the episode number on this one, see if we can... Uh, Replicate it. Um, so yeah, apparently a lot's changed. Uh, first of all, though, do you want to just remind everybody who you are? Sure. I'm one of the founders and former CEOs of Bitovi, one of like a JavaScript consulting company started like 10 years ago. I was a contributor to JavaScript MVC, uh, had a few notable contributions to jQuery, and then authored CanJS and then SteelJS and DunJS. Contributed also to a little, a bunch of little side projects that we've used over the years. Right. And CanJS, if I remember right, and DunJS were all part of JavaScript MVC or kind of came out of that project? Yes. They kind of spawned forth from that project. So that was a, a big kind of monolith project. And then the little bits got pulled out so they could be used independently. Awesome. Do you want to just give us then a brief introduction to what CanJS is? Sure. I mean, it's a it's a JavaScript framework, very similar. I, I think probably most similar to Vue. Uh, it adds uh, the probably it's the big thing it would add compared to a Vue is a, is a very strong model layer. Uh, it could do things like real time very well, and that got a big uh, kind of big enhancement in CanJS 5.0. Um, so like auto automatic list management is a, the big kind of tricky thing. And I think possibly unique that it does, at least the way that it works, but it's a, it's a JavaScript framework. So when did CanJS originally release? Oh, the, the first one, probably 2012 or 2013, maybe. Okay. And what is the current CanJS like in comparison to that version? Are we talking like, you know, version 10 versus version one, or are we talking Angular versus AngularJS? So it's, it's kind of interesting. Compatibility is really been important to us. So although CanJS 5 is quite different from like CanJS 1, a lot of the same tools are still available. I don't know if we're unique in this, but we break every single um, part of the framework is actually maintained in its own repository. So it has over 80 different repositories with pretty much like every individual API that composes to build like something not the order of like a view or, or React in terms of functionality. Uh, but that allows us to release um, like, you know, something that was in CanJS 1.0, CanMap or like this called CanControl, which is more basically like a makes jQuery widgets. So like that was kind of CanJS 1.0 is add observables and you'd use it and some templates and you'd use it to make um, jQuery widgets. It was kind of like Backbone or mixed with Knockout. 
So okay. all that stuff is still available and you can pull those repos in. It's not part of what we call our core anymore. It's not quite like it, like it's very different, like Angular is, but all those things still work and they are like, there's not as much cost to using them if you had that old legacy code because all of the low-level helpers and utilities, those are all in a layer themselves that every, and an individual repos. So it's like, if you loaded can control the old jQuery widget thing, and now you're using something that builds custom elements called can components, they have a lot of overlap in terms of the functionality that you're using. So you don't have a huge cost to like having some old legacy code still do its thing while you build something new in 5.0. Huh, okay. So I'm kind of curious here, what is it like, you know, we've got definitely a weird confluence going on right now. Angular, React, and Vue are sort of dominating what everybody is sort of talking about. So one, I think I got kind of like a two-part question here. One, where is the core strength of CanJS as far as like its user base and usage and who's, who's like using it? And two, what's it like to be the CanJS when uh, everybody's talking about React, Angular, and Vue? Yeah, so we've um, <laughs> we, we've dealt with this problem for ten years as like a consultancy built around our open source. That you know, ten years ago, JavaScript MVC was never as popular as Backbone, never as popular as Cappuccino and GWT and things like that. So emotionally, it's not great. You know, I wish it <laughs> I wish I wish it was more popular. But our responsibility is to our user base and keeping keeping them happy. So we've I mean, store.apple is built in CanJS. So there's been big sites that use it. Chase uses it, I think, for its like main once you're kind of buying things in Chase. So we've had big companies use it. There's a reason why the turtle is on its like homepage. Because our goal is just like consistently grow, evolve the platform, retain current users. Hopefully someday we'll have the breakout in terms of like reasons for, uh, you know, like, or, you know, pop in terms of popularity. But we're, I, th- I think that we are, we have shifted strategies um, a little bit and we'll see if that pays off. But, uh, and then to, to your second question is why, uh, what was the big differentiator? Um, I think that historic longevity is one, right? That that it is a framework that's going to keep. It isn't. Um, it doesn't bend to the whims of um, the community as much. That's partly why it's still around for so long, despite never being popular. You know, if you had picked Backbone, you know, six years ago. You wouldn't be left being able to migrate your application to new new um, right. new ways of development. The second thing is, like I talked about, the model layer is pretty unique and extremely uh, is a big strength of what it can do. And I think the final thing that we're starting to do with CanJS 4.0 is we we have this idea that we're going to make object oriented programming cool again. So CanJS is able to figure out. Um, in terms of like computes and things like that, what is related to what in your application uh, and in terms of like two-way bindings, one-way bindings, it's able to see how a value flows through all of this stateful mechanics that I'm not sure uh, other frameworks really have. And because of that, we've begun working on developer tools. Some of them are the, 
the pieces of it are already starting to be put in place. Like you can pick a variable, then you can just see how every element in the page responds to it, is mutated by it, or is changed by it. Um, I think that that's one thing that we are going to be very strong at in the future is that helping people um, understand their application, but get the benefits of object-oriented development, but still be able to understand it, which is in some ways the big uh, problem that people are trying to address with immutable state is that you don't know who's changing it, why it's changing through good developer tools. I think we're going to be able to help, uh, help uh, solve that problem. Hmm. Come. You mentioned uh, like two things I want to jump in on. So let's start with the first one. You mentioned like making OO cool again. We're definitely seeing, um, again, if you're talking about uh, the Silicon Valley bubble uh, of whatever, where everybody's talking to themselves on Twitter, which apparently dictates the entire rest of the, uh, <laughs> the industry, right? That's how it works. Um, I, I know that Chris is a big a big believer in letting Silicon Valley dictate and everything that we do. Right. <laughs> I, I would, I would kind of like to chime in here and say something too. So I'm a big proponent and like everything has trade-offs and I would never reach for something because it was quote unquote cool. I would reach for something because it was the right tool for the job. And unfortunately, like, I don't know. I've never seen like full in functional be super beneficial and I've never seen like full in object oriented be beneficial. So I would be really hesitant to say like, I'm trying to like make something cool. I would just be like, you know, trying to make the things that object oriented is good at super accessible in the framework. (laughs) Okay. I yeah, have that's so a, that's, many responses to that statement. That's a great, that, that's a great like uh, marketing angle to take. The, the way that to to kind of put more nuance to what we're trying to do, it's we're trying to remove some of the worst parts of object oriented programming. What what is to, okay? That sounds a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm intrigued. Say more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so what I mean is um, object oriented programming. The worst parts of it is you you have this mutable state. And you have no idea why something might change. That or, and, and, and like the deep inheritance structure, that is kind of an anti-pattern, but people tend to do it anyways. Yeah, I would, for at least in CanJS, I don't um, see that actually occurring too often. <laughs> Maybe in Can, but any developer will do anything. Oh, they will. No, I, I, undeniably they will, but that's not like... Deep inheritance is like a, I don't know, it's definitely a problem and it kind of can create this, um, you know. Like I'd rather use composition. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And you should. But that isn't, so one thing I kind of talked about in my Google Doc or whatever, the, we have changed strategies a lot and and I think it's actually helped CanJS grow. So we were really pretty much stagnant after the the 3.0 release and the 4.0 release, we finally saw our numbers grow like. 60% 60% since January. And I think a big part of that is we are doing a lot of user studies now. We actually, when we make a new release, we're about to do documentation. I run meetups and things like that. And we'll actually pay people to review the code uh, to try to program something small with it and see if they're successful. And that being said, inheritance schemes aren't something that people are going to encounter. Like if you're looking at it from kind of how I am a little bit, like we're trying to make a product now that people are going to like and enjoy, 
inheritance schemes are, is something that like people find months down the road and then they kind of blame themselves for in terms of frustration. When you're designing a framework, the immediacy of like, I just built this thing or I'm rolling onto this new CanJS project and I have no idea how it works. And like, why is this, when I, someone types in here, why is all of this stuff happening? I have no idea. That's something that people will blame on the framework. So I, I, I'm just looking at it like in terms of that, why the inheritance stuff, yeah, that's kind of, that's definitely a problem, but it's not the problem that people come back to, to me as a framework author. That like, makes more sense. Okay. This is terrible. <laughs> so that's why we're focusing so much on like the, the mutable state aspect and trying to give people cool. tools to be able to understand it. Awesome. That makes sense. Then that's good. That's valuable. Cool. As long as I can use my functional stuff, I like to. <laughs> yes, there's, there's no problem. All right, so I would like to dig in deeper. I actually uh, would like to dig in deeper into state management. Yeah, let's everybody's, dig. Everybody's doing flux, right? So talk about that some more and with CanJS. Uh, yeah, so I like the you know reducer patterns and things like that a, a lot. It depends on which kind of user you are talking to and... Uh, a part of this is now, if, if you talked to me like a year ago after CanJS 3, where we where CanJS and like DunJS and kind of Beethoven in general was, the way I approached open source was mostly just, hey, I, I'm going to do what I think is cool and, uh, and awesome, and I'm going to build those things. Uh, I really like, you know, uh, stream-based programming and, and things like that. But the problem that I see with those things and the proposals that I've written to bring that into CanJS is when I talk to new, you know, users just off the off the street, kind of like people are getting into programming, people who just graduated from boot camp, things like that. There's a reason why we, we're kind of double down on object-oriented programming. It's just because it's in some ways that universal that everybody understands. And we're we're in some ways taking a gamble that the you know what and, and in some ways view has has shown that this can be true is that to make something that's usable by everything is the by everybody is the most important thing you can do as a framework in some ways like it there's a lot of divisions inside Beethoven and, and and just people who disagree with me about this and that I've come to kind of this realization that if you look at like react statistics who uses what state management it's like more than 50% or about 50% of people don't use any state management with React. So really React is what drives, React's success is that's got the best, you know, view layer there is in terms of like how easy it is to understand. So that drove all the interest in React and, you know, its consumption. And then you get things like Flux for the, in some ways, maybe the upper echelon uh, of programmers. So I'm trying to hold myself back from things like that to make something a core inside CanJS, which is in a lot of ways, it's observable layer that is extremely simple and easy to use for everybody. And then if, then maybe there's ways of, because we've added kind of low level reducers and streaming things into, into CanJS, um, more object oriented approach, those can become more popular uh, for an upper echelon that that appreciates them, but I'm 
in some ways, just trying to avoid that from a, a design perspective. I don't know if that, that makes sense. It's kind of like a non-answer, but that's, that's how I'm trying to focus our energies. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you're skeptical. That's, that's no, totally no, no, okay. No, 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 no. It, it's totally fine. Uh, I, I just, I, I think, I think it's personally very interesting to see that there are people that are not just like, oh my gosh, uh, Dan Abramov said this. We all have to jump on this bandwagon. Not that Dan Abramov is not a very smart person. He is a very smart person. Yeah. So I think. I mean, that's how I used to think, and I, I just I don't think the the last coolest thing I, I've done is I made this incre- we, we made this H two incremental server side rendering for DunJS. Essentially, it, it server side renders your page, but as your page is building itself, it, it's actually sending H two um, diffs out from your server-side rendering that are assembled on the front end and, and, and built. And it totally improves front-end performance. I mean, it, it's radically better. And I think it's, you know, it can take a site that maybe is rendering in fr- front-end rendering in 100 millise- uh, 500 milliseconds and you'll get start seeing something come out at 100 milliseconds. Loads better. It's going to be part of DunJS 3. It's going to be amazing. No one will care, Right. Like some upper line people might say, oh, that's really cool. And, you know, maybe maybe an Amazon or Google like will use the technique and that'll be awesome. But it will not drive any users to DunJS because people just want to solve their problem. Most people don't care about performance that much. I do a lot of I do. I do a lot of you. I meet a lot of fresh developers now. And like when I say for I mean, there are people who still like make uh decisions at companies, but they haven't been in the game for like, you know, the game <laughs> for like 10 years. I, I think that focusing on them is what we're attempting to do. And at least in the last nine months, it's have had results. So Justin, I am trying to think of the best way to frame this, but so I, I kind of, I have this belief that just as a community, we tend to turn to frameworks and tools way too much. And I'm not necessarily saying you disagree with that, but you know, obviously you have a framework that you manage and maintain. So from your perspective, when does it make sense to turn to a tool like this? And when would someone be better off just kind of working with, you know, some of the native um, JavaScript methods or DOM, uh, browser APIs, things like that. Yeah, I, I think it, I mean, it depends on how complex your app is and under what constraints does it need to run in terms of browser support mm-hmm. and your ability to work through those problems. I think that's kind of a generic, to me, it really comes out like the reason to use a framework over no framework is the state management aspects of mm-hmm. frameworks. That they can, oh, something has changed and they will propagate that change through a whole bunch of different layers of your application transparent to you. Mm-hmm. And that, you, I just, I don't think you can really live, I, I can't live without. Um, unless it's like a very small, I'm just working on this, like one little, you know, area that doesn't touch much of anything else, then that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's fair, and I've I've certainly heard that before. I know I, I had a bit of a debate with Chris Coyer about kind of similar type perspective too. Um, so 
one of the things I've found is that a lot of times these um, these frameworks, and it looks like can can JS is a pretty similar thing. Like it doesn't just come with state management. There's a whole bunch of other stuff layered in too. So you know, templating and um, and helper functions and all sorts of other fun stuff, um, which I know as developers we often love because they make it easier and faster to do certain things. But um, you know, as we in particular because you just mentioned performance and. It's something I care deeply about too. Um, you know, at what point does the weight of the extra tooling become counterproductive to the end user experience? Um, you know, it's it's really easy to be like, oh, you know, an extra thirty kilobytes is inconsequential. That's a couple of JPEGs. But um, you know, depending on who's consuming your site and what their data plans look like, and it, the amount of bandwidth they have access to and where they're based in the world like that, that can be a really significant difference. It can also mean the difference between um, having a site that loads and one that just displays an empty white screen. Um, so, you know, where do you, where do you kind of draw that line? How do you think about this sort of thing? Um, so one, I would, I would check out the incremental server-side rendering stuff that we're doing when that lands. Cause that, um, yeah. That, oh, and that sounds awesome. Really excited about that. A lot of this stuff. Um, but I mean, it depends. I, I sometimes think that that's like a, uh, I don't know what the, what the parallel, that's like a rich developer problem where like you have enough, like you, you have enough users and things like that, that you can start making those fine tuned adjustments for your web application. Um, I, I think that ge generally speaking, people should do whatever's going to deliver the product first and then worry about performance later. Um, you know, we, we work with a number of startups and like, although I, I do think our stuff is geared to just come with performance by default, because, um, you know, like if you, as long as you're doing, uh, you know, uh, progressively loading your JavaScript bundles and things like that, that can, that can dramatically change the, the, the weight and the feel of your, you know, you got to load your, 30, 50 kilobyte JavaScript framework, but then your like login page is just like a little tiny bit. And that's all you load. And then everything else you kind of start background loading and you can make it a lot better. I, I think performance is absolutely something sh people should focus on. It's just, it's, it's when it makes sense from a business case. And that depends a lot like, where, where you're working. So playing devil's advocate here though, isn't, I 100% agree about like, premature optimization of code can I, I've just, I've seen people go like way down yak shaving territory before they have functional code. But um, isn't there potentially some danger in, in kind of suggesting that you, you know, focus on performance when it becomes a business issue. It's a little bit like saying, well, you know, we'll tackle accessibility later. Um, and then you never get around to it. And, you know, it may not be, um, I'm trying to say, you know, like as developers, we often work on these really fancy machines with really great, um, you know, the latest browser and excellent um, you know, uh, data connections. And so for us, it's never a problem, but it could potentially be for our users. And, and I don't know if maybe there's just a lack of empathy or awareness among developers, but um, I don't know. I just, I, I worry a little bit that, that that kind of advice has the potential to that's the kind of thing that's gotten us to where we are today, where we're loading, you know, the average web page is, what is it, like five, six megabytes per page load now and just loaded with a whole bunch of junk that you maybe don't need. Well, I, I would say then the, to me, the like 
arrow through the hole or whatever analogy you want to use is um, I, I do progressive loading and bundles because then no matter what you can build and definitely do a mod, you know, use modules because then you can build your homepage with EXTJS like angular weird monstrosity. That's, you know, 500 K to load. Um, but then when it, you get to the point where like people are actually using your product and it's out and you're like, Oh, we, we want to address, you know, we want to make it faster. You can just, you can just hard, you know, just use native HTML and, uh, native DOM methods and just build that one widget or whatever it is, is as easy and fast to load it as possible. Doesn't it feel a little bit though, like where, making a more complicated front-end engineering process and then engineering even greater complexity to deal with the complexity that we created in the first place to an extent where now we need to do things like bundlers and module loaders to address the fact that we've added so much stuff as part of this bigger... And maybe that's just kind of the cost of doing business with these more complex front-end apps that we have where you know we're doing things that are we're not just loading static documents on the page anymore, but I I'm constantly, and I, I think this is now that I'm bald and graying and getting old. I, <laughs> I feel like a crotchety old man yelling at clouds sometimes. Like it just feels like we're making this whole thing more complicated than it needs to be. So I think that's, I mean, to me, a little bit depends on where you're sitting too, because then I think it's more on the developers to push like that. A lot of times comes down to the design. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right like if your design lends itself to you know mo- most of your page is just links and things like that and there's no there's no fancy widgets or, or anything like that then you know the developers can choose a, a path for that that makes sense but once you start having a lot of complex states you know you don't want to manually write your html all over the place and have to update it you know i, I don't i don't blame developers for wanting to pull in frameworks to solve their problem and go, go home early. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's fair. And, you know, admittedly, I'm, um, I'm potentially a little overly dogmatic about this stuff because you're someone who cares about performance. Do you feel like there's maybe a, like a responsibility or an onus on people who maintain frameworks to build things into the product that maybe, I don't want to say enforce, maybe that's too strong of a word, but encourage better practices? And, and if so, is, is CanJS doing anything like that? Because I admittedly haven't worked with it much. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. 
Well, Steel gives like the warning, I think, I think it does now, like that Webpack does that, yeah, your build is big, that kind of thing. Um, in terms of performance, like mo- most, I mean, I don't think that generally speaking, the runtime performance of CanJS is going to be the critical performance path for anybody. Right, DunJS is a better question. Like, would would does DunJS do that? And yeah, arguably, it should do more than what Steel might build in. But is there a responsibility? I mean, that's like we go to like a usability. I mean, usability is the one that I feel like is more, um, you know, it's in some ways like the arguments line up better there for what you're. I think you're generally advocating is do, do developers have mm-hmm. responsibility to be like you know kind of put their foot down and say we really need usability. And this is, I mean, this is like the oldest question. This is like, what, I mean, what, like, uh, what, what's the um, Black Panther and stuff like that are, are, are like, oh, I mean, it's always the same, like where, well, maybe not Black Panther, but where do you, where do you draw the line in terms of like, you need to achieve some, it's like politicians, right? You need to achieve some success to be able to like, you need to get elected to be able to like fight the battles that you really want to win. Mm-hmm. So do you bend in the beginning to achieve the success where you can you can do you know what you believe is right? And I guess the pragmatist in me says yes, do that. Like I mean, you, you should you should hold yourself to a high standard, but like you need someone using your product, or it doesn't <laughs> doesn't matter. And I guess from from us because we do consulting and we get startups and they you know it's, it's so, I mean, it's people who like, you know, it's maybe there's not, they don't have a huge uh, amount of money and just like, you've got to get stuff done and in. Um, I, I think the real responsibility shouldn't necessarily be put on an individual developer. In some ways it like should be the framework authors to really stress that and make that stuff easy. And in some ways the, I guess I'm going to flip this back at you guys and you're doing a good job. <laughs> Which and, and, and girls is that you should demand like oh frameworks have to have an a, a accessibility or a performance story and, and those kind of things like that's what it takes to like we, that's what we want to write about that's what we want to talk about um, which good job turning this conversation into that that's kind of how you do it is you make the narrative about this is an important feature for frameworks because they'll build it in if it becomes something like users are demanding or they feel enough pressure they'll build it mm-hmm. in so it's easy to do and then when it's easy enough to do. Like it just gets flipped on, makes it becomes part of the process. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm just, I'm thinking about how like React caught a lot of flack for this. And now they have an accessibility guide on their website, for example. Um, I will shut up about this now because I could dominate the whole episode. Um, so I'll, <laughs> I'll let someone else uh, jump in now. I guess I kind of have a question. So you said that you run a consultancy. Um, when do you recommend using can and when do you recommend using something else or do you always recommend using can? <laughs> well, for, for us, it's definitely, I always recommend using can.js because um, part of our key differentiator in terms of consultancy is that we have access to all of the core contributors for the framework who can lift mountains and just make things happen. I don't know how, and solve problems that are can be sometimes tricky. I mean, I don't know if you find yourself digging through your 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 framework of choices code and be like, "What's going on here? Why isn't my stuff working?" If you ever find yourself doing that, like that's not as much of a problem because there's people that they can immediately call and and um, or like our people can talk to to get answers for that. So, what 
what do the people that you build out for, what do they do when their contract is over? Because um, I actually have worked on an application that is a very old version of CAN. And it's been extremely difficult to troubleshoot problems just because, you know, the community isn't as large and things like that. Are you on Gitter? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. not. Like, we're really okay. active on Gitter. Like, I, I think that's one thing is we also are, you know, we have, we have people whose full-time job it is to, like, help other okay. people on Gitter, which th- those people should definitely reach out to us Gitter. We that also provide, like, near at cost or... Um, at cost upgrades. So, um, I mean, at our cost, like have our developers do it. So that helps keep people moving to the latest code. We will promote in terms of if they're looking for people to do replacement, we, you know, we promote, um, whatever job posting that they, they post to help them find somebody. So we try as hard as possible to, uh, have people who've picked our technology, have a good experience and help them any way we can. Okay, that's helpful, actually. So yeah, let, let if if they're doing, let them let them know that we're we're out there. We're we're always looking to help. Then another question. So a lot of these frameworks kind of have like established testing patterns, um, just like we have like the Create React app. You know, you get stuff out of the box with that. Angular has its own thing. What do you guys do? So DunJS is that. So DunJS comes with like integrated server-side rendering, testing, continuous integration. You can deploy it to Roku. It is like just the full kitchen sink. So is, is there like a CLI if I want to do something like that? That's what DunJS is. Yeah. You just okay. DunJS add app and then it generates the whole thing for you. Okay. So uh, can we turn a, return a little bit to just CanJS and its place in the market? Do you think that the environment right now for CanJS is better or worse than it was back in 2012? As far as is there more space for CanJS as a viable solution, or is there less space in today's environment? It's probably worse, right? That I mean, you have these huge companies now that can throw lots of money at their individual platforms, but I, I mean, for us, I think we're also different than we were a year ago, at least. I mean, I, re- I really do think that this, the methodology that we're using for the last year of focusing on our users, uh, you know, we, we do a survey every six weeks to collect all their feedback on which features we should add. We, we, we do those things that they people vote for has really helped turn the tide. I mean, in, in some ways, a lot of ways, again, Vue has shown that um, building a framework that people can understand it will be successful. Um, and that's what we've begun to do by listening to our users. So it's worse, but I think we're, I think we're smarter. At least I hope we are. That remains to be seen. Um, what about for uh, frameworks in general, alternative frameworks uh, that aren't, you know, one of the big three or big five or whatever the big number happens to be at this, this, this month? Uh, is the space getting better? Is it getting more welcoming? Is it getting less welcoming? I think it de- I think it depends on what you are like what kind of framework you are in some ways. I think the problem is like frameworks have consolidated a lot in terms of their feature set and what they are. Um, so it's going to be it's very hard to compete if you are the exact same thing as you know if if you're another version of JSX or something like that. It's just 
It's just going to be hard, hard to do that. Um, of course, I mean, that's at any time, but now because the market is, there's so much, and there's so many ideas, it's just getting harder, harder. But I, I think that's, I mean, oh, any industry can be kind of right for innovation and change. You know, I, I would, I would never, the, the, I guess to me, the big question is like, what helps people break through? What do you, what do you think helps for, uh, technology or framework? breakthrough to like, oh, it gains wide adoption and mass appeal. I, I know I have my answer. I'm curious about, I feel like I've been talking so much. I have to ask you guys first something. Well, I don't know if it's more or less welcoming, but I can say for myself that I appreciate the richness of the field as it exists right now. There's certainly a couple that are definitely not in high usage that I think are very interesting for the two that I'm speaking, thinking of specifically is Svelte and Elm. I think that both of those are very useful to learn um, whether or not you might use them on a production product or project. Does that make sense? They're used. Yeah. They're useful to learn whether we got Elm for sure. Um, I don't have much, as much experience on, with Svelte. Um, yeah. Svelte's interesting because it compiles down to, just JavaScript. There's no framework. So when you download, there's no framework downloaded, no overhead. So it's kind of another cool, interesting idea. And uh, uh, the other one, the Rails one, Chuck, what's the name? <laughs> I always blank on this name because their name is not uh, super exciting. Well, we'll just give your brain a little bit of a stimulus, maybe a little <laughs> there stimulus. There you go. For you. Stimulus, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't jump out the way like Svelte does, or it doesn't stick in my brain. Anyway, stimulus is another interesting one. It's sort of like half of a framework. Yeah, it's kind of tongue in cheek as a stimulus package for your front end. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, to me, I think it's, I think it's people just saying that they like it. I think it spreads by word of mouth, and if you get something that people can use, and it, that's why I feel like I'm. I've just totally changed. I, I used to think, oh, it's it's technology. It's like this cool feature about Svelte. Um, the, the feature might be important to get maybe a few people talking about it, but all that really matters is can you deliver? Can you produce something? Is it easy to do? And then will you say, oh, I like this. I had a good experience with it. Um, you know, that at the end of the day, the usability matters more than features, I think is what is my is my uh operating theory cool i like that operating theory yeah we'll see how we'll see how it turns out uh we'll have this conversation again in like another year and a half and then and then i will either be um i will be right or wrong living on the street or i will be uh on top of the javascript world <laughs> <laughs> i'm on top of the world hey yeah yeah it'll be me, me and uh john Rezig. <laughs> uh, have we talked about like the future of CanJS and where it's going from here? I mean, this this is kind of about the future, right? But like long term future, have we talked about that yet? Yeah, I mean, long term future is I still it's because of now that this operating theory is is really um, it's really just trying to connect to our user base, finding what makes them happy, and delivering on that. I, we still put proposals out there. I mean, I think to me, the, if, if I, if I had my way, which I don't anymore, and that's actually something that's the big difference. 
but I do try to guide it. Um, I, I think JSX is the the best uh, templating language there is. It's a great way of articulating views. I'm, I'm really, really like it. Uh, so I, we've already started to build um, integrations between JSX. Uh, there's a problem. Uh, it's called Ilem, Y-L-E-M. Uh, that, that is a CanJS is observable core mixed with, um, mixed with React. I like that, but React doesn't produce custom elements. And that's something CanJS does. And I really, really like custom elements. And to me, I think the, the biggest remaining problem with custom elements is there's no good, at least I've not seen a solution, if you, if you all have, a solution for how to do bindings between custom elements of like different frameworks and things like that. Right? It's very hard to say, I want to pass this object to this custom element um, declaratively through a view. Um, and then like do two-way bindings and things like that. So I think that's really the problem that we want to solve. I think that there's a space there between like React and Vue, which is kind of solve those problems really nicely. I would really like to be in that space. Um, so that's that to me is the future of CanJS. And then I, I do, I am a big believer in like the reducer kind of state mechanics. Um, and I've put out proposals that continually are never voted on by the community to create one of those. Um, but no one seems to like them. So I will only do one if the community makes it at least high enough where I'm like, yes, this is the right thing. Let's, let's build that. So that, that to me is the, the kind of the future of the stack. I do hope the Dun.js stuff, the incremental server-side rendering is picked up in a big way. It is, it is crazy that that is even possible. Like, I, I don't want to, I, I do, I do want to communicate this because it's just so freaking cool just to, just to say it again. We will server-side render, it can work with React or Angular or whatever. And you know, like your page normally builds up as it's building up, we're doing a uh, mutation observer in the server and sending patches out to the client. In the client, we are doing uh, initial HTML kind of scrape. We send that out so the user can start seeing their initial HTML, if there's any script tags, things like that. But we also can detect any images or things like that. And we will H2 push those out and we'll push out any JavaScript. And then we also push out that stream with, with H2. And then in the client, it just basically makes a streaming um, ndjson fetch request for the uh, so what the server's pushing out, and it starts up in an iframe. It starts applying all of those patches, so you see the page building, which works really well if you've got a streaming service layer too, because then you can like see your products come in as they're streamed from the server, and then we're seeing in JavaScript is building itself. Like JavaScript is finally downloading. Well, it's actually being pushed out. And it's uh, becoming alive. Your framework is becoming alive, and it's starting to build the page. And once the building of the page surpasses what the server-side rendering has pushed out, the page reattaches, and then your application runs from there. So, in terms of slow, in, in terms of uh, performance on slow internets, it is like we, we did a. Um, we, we've got numbers on this stuff, but it's like if you've got like a, we made a, a little artificially big, uh, like 500k JavaScript asset that had a load, and then before your page could be drawn, but it's something like 10, 15 seconds faster to start seeing something in a incrementally server-side rendered page than a your standard single page application that has to like 
go back and download the JavaScript and then go back and start downloading your, uh, make Ajax requests to get your data. So um, that I hope that that's my, if my theory is wrong, that actually people do care about cool technology, that's going to be in some ways the big, the big technology that differentiates us, even though it can work with React and all those other frameworks, but that'll be the kind of the framework's feather in its cap. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. All right. Well, I think it's about time for us to do picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers, or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Yep, I have two. And I apologize again, because I'm pretty sure I duplicated them last week as I looked back through our channel and noticed. Uh, anyways, but my picks for this week. So everybody knows a huge fan of exercise. Um, so yet again, another study on how taking a walk makes you more creative, which makes you a better problem solver. So that's the first one. And then second one, um, I'm sure you can find this information in various places all over the internet, but this is a super catchy URL called, oh, and I'm so don't cuss, but it's part of the URL. So I have to say it. So it's, oh, get pretty funny. So, um, if you have anybody who's like super frustrated with get probably send them this and hopefully they will like it. It's pretty good too. Um, it's solid content. So that's it for me. Awesome. Chris, what are your picks? Hey, so I have, um, I have three this week. Um, first up is, um, and I'm sure this has been brought up on the show before, but, um, polyfill IO, um, it is, uh, FT or Financial Times um, polyfill service, um, but they've generously open sourced it and CDN'd it so anybody can use it. Um, super, super cool. You just drop a link to it on your site and it will detect the browser your users are using and automatically serve up a gzipped and minified um, set of polyfills custom made for their browser. Um, which makes it way easier to uh, just write with the latest JavaScript stuff and not have to think about it much. Um, so in the latest Chrome, you get back um, nothing. And I think it polyfills all the way back to IE7. You get something that's around like 15 kilobytes after, uh, after gzipping, which is pretty crazy. Um, so I use that on pretty much everything these days. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the second is... Um, this really awesome plugin called Dinero.js um, from a friend of mine, um, Sarah Dayan, um, also known as Front Stuff. Um, it's this super useful plugin for um, working with different currencies, um, doing various maths on them, um, doing comparisons, um, converting into different formats, um, just super, super handy. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, highly recommend. And then uh, my last one, just because I don't think I mentioned this when I actually came on the show to talk about vanilla JavaScript stuff last time. Um, but I have put together a collection of um, resources for folks who are kind of trying to do more vanilla JSE stuff. So if you go to vanillajstoolkit.com, um, I have a whole bunch of code snippets, helper functions, boilerplates, recommended plugins, and so on. Um, so feel free to check that out. 
Can you put those into a library? Yeah. So everything that I have there is MIT licensed. So if you wanted to kind of steal and repurpose, you can. Um, I am very much of the a la carte philosophy of web development. So I kind of prefer to just cherry pick stuff as needed for projects rather than kitchen sink it. Um, but someone certainly could. Well, I was just, I was implying that it would no longer be vanilla JS if you made a lot of <laughs> that is uh yeah that is that is fair it's kind of a weird um you know like when is something not vanilla javascript like react is written with vanilla js um anyways i could sell box but i won't all right joe what are your picks all right so i got two picks first there's a youtube channel called pitch meeting if you're at all into movies and you would highly enjoy this it's super clever very entertaining and the other one is the movie Solo. It probably will have just come out on DVD and Blu-ray and streaming by the time this releases, or shortly after that. If you haven't seen it, it's really a great movie. It's a good job. It's a good addition to the Star Wars uh, stable. So if you haven't checked it out, do yourself a favor, go check it out. Those are my picks. I've got a couple of picks here, and then we'll let Justin give us some picks. Uh, so the first one that I have is I've been playing with a new framework. It's a back-end framework. So yeah, not necessarily 100% applicable to uh, JavaScript, but uh, it's it's highly concurrent. It's got a whole bunch of stuff going for it. It is rather new um, by comparison to some of the other things that I've used like Ruby on Rails. Um, it's Phoenix and it's written in Elixir. And uh, I've really been enjoying that. We have an Elixir show on devchat.tv so you can go check that out. Um, and uh, yeah, that's been terrific. And uh, one other thing that I, or two other things that I'm going to pick. So I listen to programs on Audible, and I say programs because not everything I listen to on Audible is a book. Um, and so uh, the two things that I've listened to lately that I've really enjoyed, uh, one of them is a book, and it's called The Queen's Poisoner by Jeff Wheeler. Um, it's a fantasy novel. Um, it, it was it was a terrific story. Um, the narrator is pretty good. Not the best narrator that, that's been out there, but pretty good. Um, and then the other one that I listen to is A View from the Top by Zig Ziglar. And it's his audio program, not his uh, book. He has a book by the same title. So um, anyway, uh, it, it's a terrific... He just sits down and records stuff. And they kind of mix in some of his uh, live seminar recordings. And anyway, really great stuff. So if you're looking for some um, growth, uh, life, um, life advice kind of thing, then Zig Ziglar is one of my favorites. And in fact, I've actually listened to everything Audible has by him except for two books, and I'm getting to one of those next. So anyway, uh, Justin, what are your picks? So um, my first pick is, I don't know if it's technically a pick, but I was at the Browser Contributor Days event, watched that that stream, and one of the first chats was... Someone was um, implicitly or more than implicitly saying that Chrome might kill H2 push. Um, if there are any Chrome developer uh, engineers who are hearing this, please, please, please do not kill H2 push. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with it. I love it. Um, it is great. So please keep that. And watch the uh, Browser Contributor Days event on YouTube. Uh, it was really interesting um, to see what the Chrome developer team is working on, get their perspective on things. It's very helpful to know that kind of stuff if you are, um, you know, planning for the long term of, uh, you know, 
browser support and things like that. My second second pick is your episode with Tom Dale. I really like that one. I was loving when you guys have uh, framework authors on it. Um, the most important thing for me in that takeaway was that he said he wore a suit when he spoke at a conference. And I just wanted to say that I did that at a jQuery conference like eight years ago, and it did not go over well. So I want to say I'm very happy that the JavaScript community now can understand that when someone wears a suit, that it is a joke and they're not actually trying to be a salesperson. Um, I'm glad he was able to pull it off. And I wish I was there to see how he, how he, how he presented himself to make the, the kind of in-joke more obvious. Yeah, I've seen a few other people do that and they tend to um, have somewhat of a reputation in the community as being a goofball. And th- and that's how it works. So people just know that they're joking. That might so, yeah. Yeah. So if people don't know who you are or don't know that it, it's a goofball thing, then you you have to call it out tongue in cheek and make sure everybody knows that you're definitely not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah, I wore a tux actually. So that's that's even more confusing. Oh, so, somebody yeah. should have figured that out. Yeah, because like, I think some people didn't know the difference between tux and a suit. I wasn't sure, but people were like, "Oh, they're just, it's come across very salesy because of the suit," but it was a tux and no one got it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, one last thing: if people want to find you online, where are you? Uh, Justin B. Meyer at uh, Twitter and and GitHub, and then Bitovi.com uh, for my blog. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and talking to us. It's always interesting to see what else is out there. So, Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, that's our show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.